Good morning, church. How are you this morning? I'd like to just to begin by asking you a, a question. I'm just curious. How many of you found this two, two and a half month series on spiritual gifts helpful, edifying, encouraging? Good, awesome. That's, that's very encouraging to me. <clears throat> um, this morning we're going to be engaging the final text in the New Testament um, that's directly related to this subject of spiritual gifts. And next week we're going to be coming in for a landing and concluding our series and hopefully wrapping everything up and reinforcing and reiterating the, the big themes and, and main points and just kind of putting a bow on the series. Um, so there's a lot to engage this morning, so I just want to invite you guys to open uh, your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and we're going to be examining the second half of this chapter and continuing off where Pastor Andrew left off last weekend. <clears throat> so Paul writes, beginning in verse 26 of chapter 14, "'What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn.'" And let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace." As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in the church. Or was it from you all that the word of God came, or are you the only ones that it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Church, this is God's Word. Amen? Amen. Do we believe that this is God's Word? Yes. I don't know how it always works out this way, but um, whenever we kind of schedule the, 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 the passages and the preaching rotation like several months ahead, I always am assigned these easy passages. <laughs> always. It just never fails. Like the week before Christmas, I had to preach on the doctrine of hell. <laughs> so, uh, you know, as we are beginning to come in for a landing in this series, I've, I've been given the great opportunity to address this um, challenging passage. But in studying it, something became very evident to me, and that is that this passage can be broken down into three very distinct but closely related units of thought. And so I've supplied these, uh, this ordering or this structure of these units of thought in your notes, and we can tie them together with like one complete summarizing statement. And that is that everything Paul says about church order and cre creation order has its basis in Christ's orders. Everything that Paul says about church order, that's the first section of this passage. And creation order, the second section, has its basis 
or its confirmation, if you will, in Christ's orders. Uh, so let's just move into the very beginning of the passage, the, the first section, verses 26 through the first half of verse 33. And the main point that Paul's communicating here in the first part, the first third of our passage this morning, is that spiritual gifts must be exercised in orderliness to build up the church body. Spiritual gifts must be exercised in an orderly manner, in an orderly fashion, so that the body will be built up. And Paul begins this section in verse 26 by asking a rhetorical question. He says, what then, brothers? And this is his way of kind of saying, what is the conclusion of the matter? Now remember, we're at the end of chapter 14. And as we've been on this sojourn through the New Testament and all that it has to say about spiritual gifts, this, the final bit of scripture that we've been working through is 1 Corinthians chapter 12, through 14. And so Paul's argument on spiritual gifts and all that he has to say for the the past few chapters is coming to a conclusion. And and he's signaling that conclusion with this rhetorical question. So what then, brothers? What does it all boil down to? What is the conclusion of the matter? When you come together, and so he's establishing context. When you come together, when you gather together to worship, when you do church together, The rest of the passage is going to be about how to do church together, how to exercise gifts, how to be ordered. Do it this way, don't do it this way. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, that's literally a psalm or or a song, a lesson, a a teaching. I I come this morning into our gathering with a teaching to offer. Each one has a, a, a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Paul's point is not that all of these things are necessary in the corporate gathering, but in the context of the broader discussion of spiritual gifts, he's offering a representative sampling of the gifts that are represented in the body in order to assert his central argument or, 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 or thesis that regardless of what gift is being exercised or, or brought in the midst of the church service, all things should be done for building up. If you're bringing a teaching, it should be done for building up. If you're offering a tongue, it should be for building up. If a, if a prophecy is, is offered, then it should be done for building up. A song should be done for building up. All things are to be done for building up, he says. The word that's translated in this passage, building up, um, is that whole word group is related to this idea of building a house or, or building an edifice or, or building a, a structure. And so in the beginning of our series, I offered that quote to you from J.I. Packer, the great theologian, who said that um, the church is not like a bus, but it's like a what? You remember that far back? It's, uh, it's like a busy anthill where everybody is at work, right? And so here Paul is saying, Everybody's contributing their gifts and let everyone contribute their gifts for the sake of building up the body, for the sake of building up the church. And so uh, one theologian said that, that as we consider what it means to contribute and to worship together and to, and to exercise gifts uh, as the gathered church, that, that we should not think of our corporate gathering as a thousand individual experiences of worship. Sometimes it's tempting to come to church and to think of our time in church as kind of our individual experience with God. But 
the thrust of scripture is that we come as individuals with gifts to contribute for a, thou, a thousand contributions for a common experience of worship. Does that make sense? And so that's what Paul is reinforcing here. And then he's going to now get into the particulars of what that looks like. In verse 27, if any speak in a tongue, he's specifically concerned, just like in the passage of last week, the passage this week is specifically concerned with tongues and with prophecy. And so if any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three and each in turn and let someone interpret. And so he's laying down very practical, straightforward constraints for the exercise of this gift or instructions. There should be only two or three. They must take their turn. Someone needs, to be, someone needs to interpret. In other words, tongues should be orderly. They should be orderly. And he continues in verse 28, but if there's no one to interpret, let each of them, what? What? Keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. This is the first time, this is the first of three times in this passage that Paul says that someone must keep silent. So if there's nobody to interpret, then the one with the gift of tongues should keep silent. Now, it's important for us to recognize this assumption that's built into Paul's instruction. We kind of live in an age, and this isn't really the case at Hope Chapel. And I don't think it's ever really been the case at our church. We are part of kind of the charismatic tradition. Um, but it's never really been the case at Hope Chapel where gifts were exercised in such a way that, that people were um, worked up into an ecstatic frenzy where self-control was not being exhibited. But Paul, in his instruction about tongues and in his instruction about prophecy in just a moment, assumes that whoever has those gifts and whoever is exercising those gifts has the ability to exercise self-control, has the ability to demonstrate restraint. In other words, if these conditions aren't met, then that person should be aware of the fact that there's no one to interpret, and that person should be able to say, you know what, I'm just going to pray silently to myself and, and silently to God. Does that make sense? And so Paul presupposes awareness. He presupposes uh, self-control, which is, after all, fruit of the Spirit. He says in verse 29, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be what? So if the gift of prophecy cannot be, it cannot be exercised given these prescriptions, then the one with that gift should be silent. Andrew, Pastor Andrew last week gave us some good practical um, considerations about prophecy in the New Testament and how it's not like prophecy in the Old Testament. There's some discontinuity. We shouldn't think of them as one-to-one. But when we think of prophecy in the New Testament, we should think of, of words that are directed towards the body, towards the congregation, towards God's people for the purpose of building God's people up. And words of prophecy are rooted in Scripture and they are confirmed by Scripture, but they do not have the authority of Scripture. So we don't have kind of like this, this section in the back of our Bibles with, you know, lines to take notes, to write down prophecy, to kind of add what was missing. Now, that's not the idea. The idea is that, 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 that the Spirit can, can prompt words of encouragement or exhortation that are rooted in Scripture, measured against Scripture, and confirmed or disconfirmed by it. Also, we see in Paul's instructions here that with respect to prophecy, prophecy uh, in the New Testament era, is to be weighed, right? Well, what happened to a false prophet in the Old Testament? They were stoned. He doesn't say, you know, if, if a prophecy or a word is weighed and found wanting, stone the person. He just says that, that these words should be weighed. 
So there should be two or three prophecies, no more. Others must weigh what is said. Prophecy must be orderly. And so he continues in verse 31, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged in the spirit of prophets or subject to prophets. One prophet doesn't enjoy priority of, of, over the other. There's, there's not kind of this, uh, this stratification of those with that gift. And Paul concludes and says in verse, first half of verse 33, for God is not a God of confusion, but of what? Peace. Of peace. He's not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. And so Paul is saying the conduct of God's people should be rooted in the character of God himself. In our gatherings, we should reflect him. When people come in and experience God's people, they should in some sense be experiencing God himself. They should be experiencing God through his people. And so if God is not a God of disorder, he's a God of order and a God of peace, then his people should exhibit those properties and those qualities as well. Now, this is the moment This is the point at which Paul's argument feels like it takes a very abrupt right turn. So we move into the second section of this passage, beginning in the second half of verse 33. And I want to submit that the the main point of this second section is that spiritual gifts must be submitted to God's ordering of creation. Spiritual gifts, everything that we have discussed in this series up to this point, must be submitted to God's ordering of creation. Now, this is a challenging section, so I want to reread it together and then walk through it. Paul says in the second half of verse 33, As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones... It has reached. You may have noticed that I titled my sermon this morning, this weekend, Law and Order. That is a strong title for a delicate subject. And I titled this sermon Law and Order because Paul's argument in this section, his concern hinges on an appeal to the law. It turns, it depends upon an appeal to the law, to the Old Testament. But his prevailing concern, the, the, the overarching argument, the central thrust of what's being communicated in this passage as a whole is the priority and importance and necessity of order in the exercising of spiritual gifts. And so Paul's concerned very much with law and he's very much concerned with order. Now, as we begin to wade through these perilous waters, I want to invite you all to, the best you can, the best we can, suspend your convictions or reactions on this passage for just a moment. I really wrestled with this passage. I really went to war with it, uh, battled with it, and um, grappled with it. And I've done the math on this, okay? Um, This center part of our passage this morning uh, spans from the second half of verse 33 to verse 36. That's three and a half verses. We're going to do some math right now. I know it's early on Sunday, but we're going to do some math. That's three and a half verses. Of those three and a half verses, two and a half are challenging and controversial. Two and a half verses. Our passage is 15 verses long. So two and a half 
out of 15 verses are challenging, difficult, and controversial. Are you with me? That's, to be precise, 16.67% of this passage. 16.67% of this passage is challenging. And I want to encourage us as we engage this text and we allow it to confront us that we not allow in kind of reaction that 16.67% to eclipse everything else that Paul is saying. Does that make sense? And I think that it's imperative kind of in our time and setting uh, as a church, as a people, and in the culture that we live and move and have our being in to offer just kind of this word of exhortation as we, as we navigate this text. We as a church and as a family must not allow our difficulties with this passage or with the attendant issues um, to undermine the very unity and the building up that is at the heart of Paul's concern in this passage. Paul's primary concern in this passage is that the body be built up. And so as we navigate difficult texts, we must not allow our opinions about those texts to create division where the the clear expressed purpose of Scripture is that we be built up in unity and love. Amen? Amen? So we need to guard our hearts. Now, all that being said, those disclaimers being offered... To reiterate some background about this passage, Paul's writing to a church in Corinth 2,000 years ago, and things, spiritually speaking, have in certain respects gone off the rails in that church. And so Paul writes multiple letters to them. They're both really long. They're among his longest writings in the New Testament, and he's got a lot to say to them, a lot of clearing up to do with them, a lot to teach them, a lot to encourage them about, a lot to correct them on. And so he's writing to them, and evidently, something is going on with respect to tongues. Something is going on with respect to prophecy, and their perspectives need to be calibrated. But something is also going on with women. And so he's writing to reframe their perspective about women in relation to spiritual gifts, in relation to the context of the broader church setting or the church gathering, the corporate gathering. You with me so far? So Paul opens with this main point. We just went over it, that everything should be done for building up. And then his argument is very straightforward. He proceeds from tongues to interpretation of tongues, and then he moves to prophecy and the evaluation of prophecy. We just left off his instructions for the evaluation of prophecy. And it's at that point that he turns his attention to the role of women. Are you with me? This is very important. So he says, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak. Those are hard words. What does he mean by the women must keep silent? Do you think that he means that the women must keep absolutely silent? They must keep silent all the time? Well, he follows it up with they're not permitted to speak. Do you think that he means they're not permitted to speak at all? At any time? How many of you are confused? We're in chapter 14 of this letter. And we started investigating this letter to see what it has to say about spiritual gifts in chapter 12. But it just so happens that Paul addresses gender also in chapter 11. And so he has said some things to the Corinthian church already that are fresh in their minds as this letter is being read aloud to them. And so in chapter 11, Paul's already said to them, 
concerning a different matter. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Now, this is a whole different ball of wax, but something very important is being assumed or communicated in this instruction. And that is very simply that under certain conditions, it is perfectly appropriate, if not encouraged by Paul, for women to pray in the corporate gathering and to prophesy in the corporate gathering. Does that make sense? And so if Paul's already communicated that, if that's taken for granted, that women can pray and that they can prophesy, he could not mean that they're to be absolutely silent or that they're not to speak at all. Unless, of course, he's made a mistake or there's an error in the Bible. How many of you think Paul made a mistake? Come on, I have to get up here and preach on this hard passage. The least you can do is vote. (laughs) How many of you think this is, you know, an apparent contradiction to which there's some reasonable resolution. Oh, now everybody's going to vote, right? Okay, yeah. So Paul's not talking about absolute silence. He's not um, enjoining women to absolute silence, but the silence that he's describing here is completely governed by the context. Whenever we're engaging scripture and we're confronted by difficult passages, we always have to remember the number one rule of interpretation is context, context, context. And in this case, the silence is defined or described by the context. So what's the immediate context? What has he just been talking about? He's been talking about evaluating or weighing prophecy. So his central concern here isn't that women be absolutely silent. It is not to render women mere spectators in the church gathering. Rather, he expects women to pray or prophesy in the church gathering, but he expects them to be silent when it comes to evaluating prophecy against Scripture. He expects women to be silent when it comes to evaluating prophecy against Scripture. Now, if you can't quite get there with me yet, I do think that this conclusion is best supported by the remainder of this passage and by what Paul says elsewhere in the New Testament. So, um, will you stay with me? Awesome. Some of you. Cool. So, he continues in the second half of verse 34. The women should be in submission as the law also says. Submission, man, that's a dirty word in our culture. But he says that the women should be in submission. Now, this word submission should recall in the reader's minds, and it should recall in our minds Paul's discussion of marriage and his discussion of gender and roles in marriage, prescriptions for roles in marriage, but more on that in a moment. So he appeals to this idea of submission, but then he follows it up with, as the law also says. As the law also says. So here we go, law and order. What does Paul mean by, as the law also says? What is the referent of the law. What does the law refer to? I mean, it could be referring to a lot of things. It could be referring to local Corinthian law, to broader uh, Roman law, or to rabbinic law. What do you think he's referring to? Is it something that's cultural specific? Whenever we're confronted by like a, a challenging interpretive question like this, well, what does he mean when he says this? It's always helpful to go look at what he means when he says the same thing in other places. Does that make sense? So guess how many times Paul in his letters uses the term the law? 119 times. 119. And out of those 119 times, guess how many times he uses it to refer explicitly to Roman law? None. How many times has he used that term to refer to 
rabbinic tradition or rabbinic law? None. Guess how many times he uses that to refer to the Old Testament? 119. Yeah. So we have very strong precedent to see that Paul is using this term, the law, as the law also says, to refer back to the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, he's already done that in this letter. Back in chapter 11, he appealed to the law and he cited it directly. Uh, Earlier in chapter 14, in the passage from last week, Paul referred to the law and then quoted a section of the Old Testament. Our main concern in this moment, this morning, is what part of the law exactly is he referring to? Does that make sense? Every single time that Paul deals with matters of gender and church gathering, he refers to the law, and every other time except this one, he specifically and explicitly cites or quotes a very specific part of the law, and that is Genesis chapter 2. So we have every reason to believe that not only is Paul referring to the Old Testament, but he is also referring specifically to Genesis chapter 2 and to the creation account in the Old Testament. And we can confirm that further by just looking back at chapter 11, because in chapter 11, which is already fresh in their minds, Paul quotes Genesis chapter 2. He quotes the law. So this is fresh in their minds. The context has already been supplied. It's built to this crescendo, to this, to this moment. Are you with me? Yeah. What happens in Genesis chapter 2? Well, in Genesis chapter 1, we get a fly over the creation account. In Genesis chapter 2, the writer zooms in on specific parts of the creation account. In Genesis chapter 2, we see that Adam that Eve is created, that she's given to Adam, that Adam names her. And in the creation account, we see that Adam is given responsibility, is given dominion by God to enumerate, to name all of the animals. And that's like a process of elimination. He's going through, going through, naming, naming. He gets to the end. He's like, man, all the animals are other. None of them are like me. I have no compliment. They all have compliments but I'm still alone. I'm still distinct. And it's at that point that God gives him Eve. And then after God creates Eve, God does not name Eve, but Adam is given the responsibility by God and permitted by Eve to give her a name. And that moment indicates a, a sense of authority over and responsibility for Authority over and responsibility for. Now, let's just look at this passage very briefly. Genesis chapter 2. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. That could also be translated uh, ally or strong ally. I revisited the Hebrew this week. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman And brought her to the man. The man said, this at last. I've gone through this whole process and I've not found one like me. But this at last is like me. Bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast his wife. And they shall become one flesh. One flesh is a very important concept that's being conveyed that is reiterated whenever, is, whenever marriage is discussed in the New Testament. Oneness is at the heart of marriage in the Christian conception of marriage. Oneness. And not oneness that emerges from 
one superior and one inferior that come together, but one that emerges from two equals that come together, but God has ordered in a certain way. There is a plan and there is a pattern to God's creational intent for gender, for marriage, and for function. I said in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul explicitly appealed to God's law, to the, the creation account. <clears throat> for a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. And this is, these are not statements of value. These are statements of pattern. They are statements of order. The creation account is sequential in its ordering for a reason. When Paul discusses uh, related but distinct the matter of women in the church and in church leadership in 1 Timothy chapter 2, he says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach her to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. And in order to confirm or support this teaching, he appeals to or cites the Old Testament, the creation account. He grounds it in God's creational intent for man and woman. For God was, for Adam was not formed first, then Eve. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. With respect to our passage this morning, I believe that Paul grounds his requirement that women be silent with respect to evaluating prophecy and God's ordering of creation. As the law also says, Paul says. So our question in response is this. Is Paul dealing with a specific situation at a specific time? Is he dealing with a specific cultural situation in Corinth such that his instructions to them here would not be applicable to churches elsewhere? Right? Is this just like a specific situation? How do, we, how do we make that determination? How do we know? Well, if we go back to the very beginning of this section in verse 33, Paul begins with what? As in some of the churches of the saints, as in all the churches of the saints, he says. I think this is an important point of application. As in all the churches of the saints, every one of them. That's his way of saying, hey guys, I need to, to bring a word of, of, of teaching, of correction, and I need you to understand that everybody else gets it. Everybody else is doing it according to God's ordering, but, but you guys need to understand, and, and you guys need to, everybody's doing it this way, as in all the other churches, he says. But the combination of that statement with his appeal to the Old Testament, thousands of years after creation, in the New Testament era, this is important because what separates us from those Christians in Corinth, theologically speaking? What's changed theologically between the time they lived the Christian life and as we're laboring to live the Christian life? What's changed? Nothing. Theologically, nothing has changed. We're still in the same era. We're, we're, we are in the, the era of the church. And over and over and over, Paul encouraged that early church to live as though Jesus, to live expectantly as if Jesus was going to return any day. Pastor Andrew talked about that a couple months ago. We also need to live expectantly as if Jesus could return any day. That church, just like our church, lives in the time where we wait for Jesus' return. And we live the gospel out 
faithfully, and we are commissioned to bring the gospel to all the peoples of the earth. We live in the age of the church. Theologically, nothing has changed from that time to this time. But something has changed. What, What has changed from then to now? Culture. Culture has changed. So the question is, are the principles that are being prescribed in Scripture dependent upon culture, or are they invariant, or in some sense, do they transcend culture? Well, what has Paul said? Paul has said, as in all the churches of the saints, but he's also appealed to the creation account, to God's ordering, to his creational intent. And he's done that thousands of years after God created. And he's done that after the period of the Old Testament closes. He's done that in the time of the New Testament, suggesting that God's ordering of creation that was authoritative in the Old Testament is also still authoritative in the period of the New Testament. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's done in all the churches, and I would submit that that doesn't just mean all the churches in that time. That means all the churches until Jesus comes back. And he also grounds what he's saying in the law, in God's creation account. There is a sense in which the Bible is transcultural. And this is a principle, no matter how difficult it is for us to wrestle with or how it confronts us, that is transcultural. I want, to, I want to give you an example of how the Bible, and specifically these principles, are transcultural. We are all conditioned by the culture that we live in. <clears throat> and we've all come into the Christian faith out of a very Western, ruggedly individualistic, cultural setting. But imagine for just a moment that we had all come into the Christian faith recently from a, a, a Middle Eastern Muslim context or or background. If that were the case, then the things which are controversial to us about this passage coming from our cultural background, those things would not be controversial. Rather, things which as Americans are not controversial in this passage would be controversial to us. Okay, If, if you were coming into Christianity from a Muslim background and you read in the text that women don't have to be absolutely silent in the gathering, but that in the gathering of the saints, they should actually, under the right conditions, pray and prophesy, well, that would be scandalous. That would cut. If you, coming out of a Muslim context, looked at what the New Testament has to say about the equality of gender and the ordering of them, and especially what Paul has to say about husbands, Husbands being, wives being submitted to husbands, but then husbands also being submitted to wives. The idea that husbands should in any respect be submitted to their wives would be utterly scandalous. That doesn't cause us to be scandalized in our culture, but in other cultures, those points of Scripture are very scandalous. So what's scandalous to us is not scandalous to those coming into the faith from a Muslim context, but for what is scandalous for those coming into the faith from a Muslim context is not scandalous to us. But the Bible confronts all cultures at all times. It is transcultural. Are you with me? And what it says does not change whether you're coming from a Muslim background or a secular atheistic background, you know, or or just a Western kind of pseudo-religious American background. Now this brings me to our next verse. Verse 35, the last verse in this kind of disputed section. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. Now, he's already used the language of submission, which which evokes in our minds or 
calls to our recollection what he has to say about husbands and wives in Ephesians chapter 5. And now he's using more marriage language and talking about the relationship between husbands and wives and how they relate to each other in the home and in the church. And we know Paul's instructions about marriage. Can I just do like, I know that this is a long sermon and, you know, we're on spiritual gifts, but this came up because we're teaching through the passages. And so I want to, I want to be as faithful to the text and, 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 and deal with the, the core issues as thoroughly as I can and just we have one week on it, okay? <laughs> so can, can I just take a, a brief minute and go to Ephesians chapter 5? Because I want to reiterate something. Um, and I want to react. I want to push back against the cultural misrepresentation of Scripture that, that it is uh, authoritarian with respect to women, um, that it is patriarchal. That is the secular critical assessment of, of what Scripture is saying, that it's patriarchal. Okay, if that's the case, then talk to me about why Paul spends three verses in Ephesians 5 when dealing with husbands and wives, three verses on wives, and a whole paragraph on men. I mean, he really nails husbands down to the mat in this passage. He says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Paul's in, in, in this account, when it comes to gender and marriage, appeals to the gospel and talks about how, look, whatever the condition of your marriage is, it reflects the gospel. It, it, it may reflect it well, it may reflect it poorly, but regardless, it reflects. Okay, there's an ordering. Just like there's an ordering in the Godhead, just like there's an ordering in the gospel, there's an ordering in marriage, and it's prescribed by God, not by men. And so that's really scandalous, these three verses. He uses this word submission, challenging to us in our culture. But then look what he says to the men. This is not patriarchal. Husbands, love your wife. All right, how many words are we in? Husbands, love your wives. Four words in, right? How did, husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself, how did Christ love the church, by the way? Husbands. All the way. Sacrificially, he put his bride first. Redemptively, he atoned for, covered, and took care of her sin. Sacrificially, redemptively, unconditionally, it doesn't matter how much his bride has sinned. It doesn't matter how much his bride might look like the prostitute Gomer in the Old Testament. It doesn't matter how much that the church whores itself out to Babylon. Christ loves his bride unconditionally. Christ loves his bride efficaciously, meaning that his love produces something in his bride. His love produces loveliness. it is efficacious, affects change. Yeah, wow. That's a big responsibility for us husbands, isn't it? When I start to experience feelings of dissatisfaction in my marriage, all I need to go back to is Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3, and get smacked down by Paul for a second. Ask myself, am I loving my wife unconditionally, sacrificially, redemptively, and efficaciously? We haven't even gotten into the rest of the paragraph yet. Is Paul being patriarchal? Is he being sexist? No. He's going to great lengths to ensure the, the equality, the sanctity, in, in the care of women. Let there be no, what is he? Husbands love your wife, that they might sanctify her, having cleansed, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves 
His wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Nourishing and cherishing one's wife as, as oneself, is that patriarchal? No, it's sacrificial. Because we are members of his body, roots it in the gospel. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Wow, where did we just hear that language in Genesis chapter 2? Always appealing back to the law. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let the husbands love his wives. It's not easy for men to love, but Paul commands the husbands to love. And it's not natural for women to respect. It's more natural for them to love, yet Paul instructs the women to respect. So he commands each gender according to each gender's weakness, men Men love, women respect. There is an ordering that God has prescribed. There are roles, there are responsibilities. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. So men, we have a responsibility. We have a responsibility for leading our wives. And passages like Ephesians 5, and passages like 1 Corinthians 11, or 1 Timothy 2, or in this case this weekend, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, do not give us license for lording it over our wives. It does not demote them in status. Are you with me? Now, he continues, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Why? In what sense? Now, remember, the context has shown us that he's talking about speaking with respect to weighing or evaluating prophecy, right? And he's also appealed elsewhere in the New Testament to the creation account to support his argument that men are responsible for doctrine and teaching in the church according to how God has ordered things. Consider also for just a moment what Paul says back in Ephesians 5. He, he says that husbands, whatever we're to be doing, we're to be washing our wives with the word. We're to be taking responsibility for truth and doctrine in the home. Men are supposed to be taking the lead in the home in teaching and building up their wives and their children in the gospel, in the word of God. And so if it holds that men are to be doing that in the home, it would make sense and it would, be, it would demonstrate continuity that they would also be doing that in the church. It is not a matter of superiority, it is a matter of prescription. God has prescribed it. God has said, men, you take the lead. I'm holding you primarily responsible for the handling of my word, for the dissemination and, and, and faithfulness with my truth. And so I think in this passage, Paul refused to permit any woman to enjoy church-recognized teaching authority over men because of how God ordered creation and the roles between males and females. In this passage... I think, run up against the fact that careful weighing of prophecies somehow falls under that function. To carefully weigh a prophecy, to weigh it authoritatively, was the job, I think, of the elders in the church, certain men in the church, who were commissioned to handle Scripture and to kind of authoritatively render a verdict. And so here Paul's saying there's some sense in which when it comes to evaluating prophecy, it's evaluated against the Word, and, and that role is reserved for men. Does that make sense? But he uses this strong word, shameful. And that was 
a word that was very specific to a culture. We don't live in an honor-shame culture. Some of you come from Asian cultures, which are very honor-shame oriented. Paul's writing to an honor-shame culture. So this, this word shame is like a technical word in a way. In what way could it be shameful for a woman to speak up in the context of evaluating prophecy? Well, maybe her, her husband offered a word of prophecy, and maybe what was going on in that church is, you know, a wife would stand up and say like, hey, you know, husband, you're, you're wrong about that. That would be kind of embarrassing, right? You know, that would be kind of culturally unpalatable or shameful at that time. We could posit any number of possibilities. We don't know specifically what was going on in Corinth, but something was going on which gave rise to this shamefulness. But I think that there's something even more important behind this. In what sense is it shameful? It's, it's shameful in that it doesn't promote men. Oh my gosh, I can't believe Mike just said that. Oh, I don't like that. When I use the word promote, I don't mean it in a, a, a modern, western, individualistic sense. I mean it, I mean it in a, a biblical, creational sense. Now, I've supplied all kinds of resources on the last page of your notes, but I want to quote to you from one particular resource um, that was offered to us at the uh, Ferment Only, for those of you men who are here, and that I'm reading through now, and it's just an excellent resource. Um, and this was a, a, a doctoral thesis by this guy that he turned into a book. But he says this about promote, this like, biblical idea of promotion. Are you ready? Yes. Promotion is the positive work behind all the telling of women to be quiet in the church that Paul does. No inherent benefit lies in women's silence. The marriages, the family, and the church all need to hear their voices. So does Paul. In the same letter to the Corinthians, he commends them for having women publicly praying and prophesying. In another letter, he tells women to teach other women. By the way, in all of our discussion of spiritual gifts over the past two and a half months, has any text anywhere given any indication that the giving of gifts is dependent upon gender? No. There's no biblical warrant for the claim that women can't have the gift of teaching. But all gifts are to be submitted to God's ordering of creation. Are you with me? And there are appropriate contexts for the exercising of tongues. There are appropriate contexts for the exercising of prophecy. And there's appropriate contexts for the exercising of teaching. That's what Paul is saying. Paul obviously wanted women speaking in the church. So commanding their silence at a certain time, in this case during the teaching or official judging when others weigh what is said, is his call to express the gendered gift. Not speaking when they could speak promotes, there's this promotion, not speaking when they could speak promotes their brothers to grow in taking responsibility. When Paul writes to Timothy about women's silence and authoritative teaching, his mind goes back to Genesis 2 because of Eve's silence before Adam and their story. When they meet, Eve certainly could speak, but the account presents us with no speaking on her part. Instead, she allows Adam to name her. Women are told to give the gift and men to receive it because of the good that results to both. The way it enables a man to grow out of selfishness and into living with others. When I do marriage counseling, the number one challenge with men is their selfishness. They're selfish and unwilling to take responsibility or avoid responsibility like the plague. But here he says that women are told to give the gift of promotion and men to receive it because of the good that results to both, the way it enables a man to grow out of selfishness into responsibility, into living for others, and the way it enables a woman to become strong in faith. Because a woman doesn't take things into her own hands, she waits on God. Her faith is built. 
She trusts in God. She trusts that the word that he has given is good because God is good, therefore his word is good, therefore she can trust his word, therefore she can wait patiently on God in faith. When the women in church refuse to speak in certain contexts, the resulting silence grows louder and louder until the men are roused to represent. So there's a purpose and a pattern behind God's ordering. Now the final, the final words in this second section are verse, the words of verse 36, and Paul ends very much in the way he began. He says, or was it from you that the word of God came? This is, he's being sarcastic, dealing with them. Did, did the word of God, did the gospel originate with you guys? Did it come from you? Do you have a monopoly on God's truth? Do you have a monopoly on the gospel? Or worse, are you the only ones that it has reached? Are you the only ones with God's word? Are you the only ones with the gospel? No, no. Remember, as in all the churches of the saints, guys, as in all the churches of the saints, you're not the only, it wasn't from you that the word of God came, and you are not the only ones that it is being reached. And so he concludes his argument in very much the same spirit that he opened it. Now, this is not a matter of value. Gender, roles, patterns, purpose, distinctions, asymmetry in, in, in the Bible are never a matter of value. And that is the biggest lie of our age with respect to what the Bible has to say about, about, about gender and about roles. As a matter of fact, in the very beginning of the creation account, in Genesis chapter 1, even before Genesis chapter 2, we read that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. To reinforce the point that male and female are both created equally in God's image and equally commissioned to reflect him. This kind of complementarian theology has been abused in our culture. And we need to recognize instances of abuse when they occur and condemn them as abuse and, and demand and encourage repentance whenever that, whenever that is the case. But our culture denounces this kind of interpretation on the basis that it is abusive and cites only the abusive cases as representative in order to overturn it. But that's not the case. I grew up in a home that was ordered like this. In, there was never any abuse. Now. There was only flourishing in the home I grew up in. My home is ordered like this, and there's no abuse. Go talk to my wife. Go talk to my children. There's, there's by God's grace, flourishing in our home. But we must never, as men, allow God's ordering of things to give rise to uh, abuse or distortion of his plan and of his pattern and of his word. And we see that as a consequence of the fall. By the way, it's presupposed in everything Paul writes that those who are submitted to his word in this way are born again, that they're changed, that we're made new, that we're given the ability by the indwelling power and presence of the Holy Spirit to live these things out. The outside cultures are not necessarily that way. But in our culture, these ideas for those coming into the church or those intellectually curious about Christianity, these ideas are a defeater. What the Bible has to say about gender, about roles, about marriage, about sexuality, those things are a defeater for Christianity, for the outsider today. But church, we need to be encouraged. We need to remember. And we need to not shy away from these things. We need to remember that just because something in our culture is unpalatable, 
that does not make it untrue. The palatability of something does not determine the truth or falsity of it. Tim Keller said recently, to stay away from Christianity because part of the Bible is offensive assumes that if there is a God, he wouldn't have any views that upset you. How easy we make that assumption, right? Like, oh God, you know, you need to accommodate me in all ways, in all your ways. This same Tim Keller was recently condemned in the last two weeks publicly by Princeton Theological Seminary when he was invited to receive a very prestigious award by the seminary, but in response to his nomination for that reward, faculty of the seminary, students of the seminary, alumni of the seminary cried out against his nomination because he holds to these traditional gender roles. In the Presbyterian tradition, in his particular strain in the U.S., he doesn't support the ordination of women. And so there's been this massive public outcry against him because his position is intolerant. You should read some of the things. I don't have time because I've taken too much of your time already. You should read some of the things that have been written by Tim, about Timothy Keller in the last two weeks. And I'd ask, who's, who is intolerant? Is it the man who stands in his conviction about the testimony of Scripture and submits himself to God's ordering of things in good conscience? Or is it the culture that holds itself off at a distance and says... Wait, 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 did God really say? Or even worse, the culture that says there is no God, there is no truth except the truth that there is no truth, or the truth as we prescribe it. Or the culture that says don't give an award to that bigot without even taking a moment to comprehend the place of his heart in relation to his God and in relation to the scriptures and in relation to the city that provides the context in which he ministers, New York City, that he cares for so much. Church, I'm convinced that we must see that God intends his design, these asymmetrical but complementary roles for our good and for his glory. The question is, do we trust God's word as his word? Do we trust that God is good and therefore that his word is good and that, and that we can trust it because we trust him? And nothing is done more for the cause of women in the past 2,000 years and the rise of Christianity. I want to give you one example to support that claim. What are we celebrating in two weeks? Easter. Easter is the most important moment that we celebrate and we remember as Christians. Why? Because if Jesus wasn't raised, what are we doing here? We should be sleeping in and watching, you know, sports. Paul says it, you know, if, if Jesus wasn't raised, then we are of all people should be pitied. Our entire faith stands or falls on the resurrection. It stands or falls on the testimony of the empty tomb. And as we look at Scripture, who provided the testimony about the empty tomb? Who were the immediate eyewitnesses? Women were. In a cultural setting, in a context where for a woman to offer any testimony in Jewish culture or in broader Greco-Roman culture, that notion was scandalous because intrinsically women were viewed as subpar. They were ordered lower than men on the gender ladder. And it was considered legally and in public thought that the testimony of women in, in courts or, or in, in public affairs was subpar. Yet we see here that God in his infinite goodness and graciousness and somewhat ironically chose women to be the eyewitnesses of the most important moment of our historic faith. And he did that to lift them up. He did that to lift them up. 
One of those women, incidentally, was also a woman of, of, of questionable repute. And so I submit, church, that in engaging difficult matters like this, if this is what the Bible says, this is what God's word really lays out for us in terms of a plan and a pattern, and if we ignore it, then we ignore it at our own peril. We need to develop a robust theology of, of gender and relationships and, and sexuality. Of course, this one weekend isn't the time and the place. In response to this position on Scripture, it's often been said, well, how could you take such a position? Because, you know, to do that, to say that women can't teach or be ordained or that they're to be constrained in some way in the context of ministry, that eliminates half the clergy. You just cut off half the team. How patriarchal. But if you've been paying attention throughout this series, hopefully at some point, You've absorbed this simple truth. Members are ministers. You don't become a minister when you get ordained. You don't become a minister when you stand up here and give a sermon. We are all ministers. So this idea that half the ministers are cut out is just an absolute misrepresentation and falsehood. I want to read you a statement from the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood on this matter. With half the world's population outside the reach of indigenous evangelism, with countless other lost people in those societies that have heard the gospel, with the stresses and miseries of sickness, malnutrition, homelessness, illiteracy, ignorance, aging, addiction, crime, incarceration, neuroses, and loneliness, no man or woman who feels a passion from God to make his grace known in word and deed need ever live without a fulfilling ministry for the glory of Christ and for the good of his fallen world. Amen? So if you believe that the Bible says that you can't minister because you're a woman, rest assured, that is not what the Bible says. But now I need to wrap this up, and you guys have been extraordinarily patient. So let's move to our last section. Verses 37 through 40, the central point is that spiritual gifts are not only given by Jesus, but they are governed by Jesus. Remember that Paul says, as the law also says. In other words, the law is also a testimony to the truths that I'm delivering to you. The other testimony is Jesus himself. Verse 37, if, every, if anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of who? The Lord, Jesus. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So Paul says that everything he says about church order and creation order have their basis in Christ's orders. And so he, con he concludes, so many brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but in all things, all things should be done decently in order. Earnestly desire the things that build up the body. Don't forbid those things which build up the person, but all things should be done decently in order, and in order. Amen? Amen? Church, everything Paul says about church order and creation order has its basis in Christ's orders. Spiritual gifts must be exercised in orderliness to build up the body. Spiritual gifts must be submitted to God's ordering of creation. And spiritual gifts are not only given by Jesus, they are governed by Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It challenges us. It confronts us. It changes us. We pray that we would be built up through being challenged by your word. I pray that we would not be discouraged, that men or women would not be discouraged in this moment, but that we would be encouraged that, that your plan and your pattern are good. pray that we would think the best of you, God, and the best of your word. I pray that this church family would be built up, that we would grow not just into maturity, but we would also grow as a church family, that others would come in seeing the beauty of you through the beauty of this family, and they would come to you and they would be saved. So we submit ourselves to you this morning, and now we turn our attention to sing your praises. In Jesus' name, amen.